the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm ready. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We uh, are continuing in our survey of a book called The Kingdom, from Creation to the Millennium, by the author Don Enavolson. And um, we finished up uh, last Sunday with uh, chapter 16, which was the voice of the Spirit, where we talked about uh, the difference between Logos and Rhema. Logos being uh, basically the written word that we see in Scripture, and Rhema is something much narrower, which is more the spoken word. And today, uh, in chapter 17, this chapter is entitled Obedience, but you're going to see the connection of how we are going to tie in this concept of obedience to both the Logos and the Rhema and how they interact with one another. So um, the first paragraph of uh, chapter 17, it's kind of a good summary um, and I'm going to go ahead and just read the first paragraph straight out of the book because it'll kind of set up uh, the uh, teaching that we're going to be doing this morning. And the author says at this point, some key elements uh, delineating the kingdom can be summarized. A kingdom is defined not by its geographical boundaries, but rather by the sovereignty or the authority of the king why it's called a kingdom, the domain of the king. The kingdom of God is established wherever the sovereignty of God as king is acknowledged and observed. Acknowledgement of his kingship is shown or manifested by our obedience to him as king. I'm going to read that again. Acknowledgement of God's kingship is shown or manifested through obedience to him as our king. So entry into the kingdom requires a um, beginning act of faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ, 
his Jewish name being Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And the one and only means of admittance into that kingdom is through a recognizing of what Jesus did for mankind and a repenting, a turning from our earlier ways of rebellion and sin and basically requesting that he come in and basically do an inside job. We're, we're asking him to move in and to indwell us and bring his kingdom, bring his God, God the Father's will to bear in our lives. And it's an incarnation, if you will. So, the, but what happens after that? Um, the author earlier talked about, you know, Passover um, is what he called the initiatory rite, R-I-T-E. In other words, it was the beginning of something. It was the start of a, of a journey. Um, it wasn't the beginning and the ending, as so often Gentile churches teach. Uh, the Jews understand, Messianic Jews understand much better. And by the way, I'll define what Messianic Jews are. Messianic Jews are Jews who have acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Jewish Messiah. They understand uh, better that Passover was the beginning of a journey of slavery in Egypt over to uh, freedom and um, reward in Canaan, or to soon to be Israel. And there was a journey, and things had to be learned. And Jews being away from a relationship with God the Father for 430 years while they were slaves in um, Pharaoh's Egypt didn't know their Hebrew God. They didn't really have a relationship with him. And so the journey, the purpose of the journey was so that the Hebrew God, God the Father, Yahweh, Av, Av is the Jewish word for father, Paul says, uh, Abba, Father, and when he wrote, writes about the Father in the book of Romans. And it's a reacquainting, if you will. It's a reunification of a ruptured relationship, if you will. But part of this journey is learning his voice, his direction, his wisdom, his countenance, and much of a relationship between God and man, in order to be manifested in the kingdom. And kingdom, again, kingdom is God's government arriving to earth, to earth from heaven, just like we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. It's interesting that Jesus taught that prayer while he was on earth to his apostles who were on earth. And notice it didn't say, thy kingdom go. It didn't say, thy kingdom escape. It didn't say, thy kingdom get out of Dodge. It's saying, thy kingdom come. So we are in the process of understanding that This is a government exchange. This is a government changeover, if you will, from the rebellious fallen angel spiritual government 
which took over the earth in the fall of Genesis chapter 3, after, unfortunately, Adam and Eve were tricked and deceived and basically handed over their authority to rule and reign over the earth that they were given by the Father in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So Yeshua, Jesus, came to reestablish the kingdom. He came back to bring back the government of God, the order of God the Father. God's kingdom is order. And we see that in Isaiah 9, uh, where it says the government on Messiah, of, of this Prince of Peace, will be on his shoulder. He's bringing it with him. And that was the message that John the Baptist was trying to prepare uh, the Jewish people for, saying, hey, repent, change the way you operate, change the way you think about things, because there's a new government coming. And it really wasn't new. It was the same government that was in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. But it was new for them in the sense that it was being restored, brought back, reestablished. And so the author says, life in the kingdom is shown by our submitting to the king of the kingdom, the king of the government. And he adds, obedience is not a matter of gaining entrance into heaven or of appeasing an angry God, but rather obedience is a matter of, listen, alignment with our original design of how we were created in order to maximize the experience of life and the effectiveness of our purposeful ministry. What's our purpose here? Why are we here? What does God want of us, from us? And we've talked about that. We're not going to go into that right now, but obviously it's, uh, if you remember, we are to be the visible image of the likeness of God. That's exactly what Yeshua was. And he said, as you see me doing, you're going to do even greater things. We are to be also the visible image of the likeness of God as we invite him in to us to take over. And so the goal is of the kingdom is not going to heaven, but rather it's seeing heaven coming to earth so it can be shown or manifested on earth. So we're going to tie this arrival of the kingdom into obedience as being so critical for kingdom life. And so the author says he wants to bring up and talk about the distinction he mentioned in the earlier chapters about what is the logos and what is the rema. And in, in essence, when we are talking about the concept of obedience and putting the importance of obedience to God into perspective, the author said, look, it's really useful um, studying the biblical concept of Lagos and Rhema. And so he says, in a sense, there is obedience to the Lagos of God, And as you remember from last week, Lagos is the written word of God as we have in the scripture. And obedience to the rhema rhema as well. And the rhema, as you remember, was the voice of God, often expressed through 
of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Logos represents the whole of God's Word, the comprehensive package, if you will, that we see in the written Word, and Rhema is the part or the oral component of God's um, Word, obedience to the King involves um, adherence to his general commands, which are found in the design protocols. Well, what does that mean? That's a fancy word of just saying how we were made, how we were put together. What was our design? Our design was to be in touch with God all, at all times. Our design is to be a vessel in which God actually resides. Our design is actually to be a dwelling place in which the Godhead indwells and resides. So that's our design protocol. And we have to adhere to his general commands that are located in the written word, which is the logos. But there's a second part to this. There's a second element. We also have to have compliance or obedience with God's immediate or imminent day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute, and I'm going to add this, second-by-second directives. What to do in the here and now. What to do right here and right now. What to say right here and right now. What to think right here and right now. These imminent directives, immediate directives, are basically how do we take the written word that we find in Scripture and, and implement it in our daily lives? Do I talk to this person now? Timing is important. Do I, what's the content that you want me to say to this person? How do I phrase this? In other words, you defer to the kingship of God in your life, over your life, and you say, Father, I'm here because I've been given an assignment, and I'm working with you. I'm not only working for you, I am working with you as a co-mission. If you notice, it's the great commission when Jesus sends out the apostles right before he goes back to the Father. Co-mission. Because we are co-regents, co-governors with God. That's how he intended it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and he never changed his mind. That original blueprint is still intact. But we need minute-by-minute second-by-second guidance from the Holy Spirit, and that is called rhema. And there's going to be communication directing us. That can oftentimes appear as a a notion or a a actual audible word. Other times it'll just be an impression. Uh, Different people receive it different ways. But in either case... um, either whether it's talking about the Logos, the written word, obeying that, or whether it's obeying the oral commands of the, of the rhema, the spoken word, 
In either case, without obeying, without obeying God's will, without obedience, the kingdom isn't present. But again, the kingdom is there if we acknowledge that God is our king in the here and now. That's when the kingdom is present. That's when God's government, his order is present. And uh, the author says, you know, you can follow the Ten Commandments, uh, but if you ignore the Spirit, that isn't going to work. He's saying, look, both the obedience to the written word, the logos, and the rhema work, a rhema word, I'm sorry, both of them are necessary in order to be effective in carrying out our function our task, our assignment in the kingdom. Now he goes on to say that um, that sounds good, you know, starting out, but unfortunately um, this system of government got subverted by, of course, rebellious humanity who uh, narrowed down the concept of obedience, unfortunately, to ritualistic or legalistic rules uh, to be followed in a religious way, religiously. Uh, he points out the example of Jewish use of the Torah, of the law, uh, unfortunately morphed into a restrictive uh, set of regulations. And when it did that, it led away from God's purpose of the law, and it stifled both the freedom in which God desired his people to operate, to function, and it interfered with the impact of those same people on the world around them. So instead of being the visible image of God as your purpose of life, instead of imaging that divine life of the Father, these restrictions imposed impediments to the fulfillment of mankind's purpose on the earth. What happened? Well, when you focus on the law just being a set of ritualistic laws, the focus changed. It changed from imparting and nurturing life to others to a focus on only avoiding sin. And avoiding sin is important, but um, it's way larger than that. And Paul um, said in 2 Corinthians 3.6, the law itself does not lead to life, which is what something we described earlier, which is knowing relationally the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So let's read that verse out of Second Corinthians 3, 6, uh, the New King James. And it says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter but rather of the Spirit, and that's a capital S. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but it is the Spirit that gives life. So, it's interesting when we talk about what is life. Of course, you've heard me say on this radio show many times, John seventeen three. It's a relational um, expression between two individuals, Father God and ourselves, and Jesus Christ and ourselves. 
and the Holy Spirit in ourselves. But the verse that we talked about so much was John seventeen three, where it actually starts off with the words, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. That doesn't mean know in your mind, but it means know relationally in your heart, a, a, a relationship of trust, a relationship of dependence, a relationship of interaction frequently. So, oh, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So you've got to know the Father, but we only get to know him through Jesus Christ, coming to the Lord, coming to a salvation, initial salvation experience. And I like that reference in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says it's by the Spirit and through the Son that we come to back to the Father, come to know the Father. So, there's a different element to this identification of the f- connection of Father and eternal life. So we must know the Father relationally through the Son. But in John twelve fifty, the author points out that Jesus identified what he identified as the commandment of the Father, eternal life, was always there. Let me go ahead and read that verse actually out of the scripture here, just so you can hear its context. So let's go to John 12, verse 50. Actually, let's do, um, actually, verse 49 for context. For I have not spoken on my own authority. This is Yeshua speaking in John chapter 12, and Jesus speaking. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. That sounds pretty kingdom-like, doesn't it? But check out verse 50. Jesus says, and I know that his command is eternal life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So it's interesting, um, John seventeen three it talks about eternal life is knowing Father God, but in John uh, 12, 50, 12, verse 50, it says, and I know that his command is eternal life. So basically saying, if we know God's command and we keep it, um, we are experiencing knowledge of the Father. So uh, back in the Old Testament, this is nothing new for the Hebrews. Moses told Israel as, as Israel as he prepared them for going into the promised land, quote, you shall keep his statutes, being referring to the Father, and his commandments, again referring to the Father, which I command you today, this is Moses speaking to the Hebrews, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40. And then check out uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 20, verse 11. God declared, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which, listen to this, if a person does them, he shall live. 
See the connection here? You want to experience eternal life? God's saying, do do what I say. Isn't that interesting? And um, I'm just going to skip ahead here. This is not in the book, but John 15, it's, Jesus says, you want to be my friend? Okay, then do as I say. And Jesus also says in uh, John chapter 14, he says, if you love me, I think this is 1421, and again in 1423, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments, keep my word. And he says, what happens if you do prove your love through keeping his commandments? He says, oh, and my Father will love you, listen, and then we, plural, will come at, and make our abode in you. Wow. That doesn't sound like just a, a dinner break. That sounds like they're showing up with the moving van and they're bringing their furniture. And we are to invite the Godhead to come in and remain in us, not just visit once in a while or just show up when there's something like an emergency. No. So the author says it was clear that God did have some restrictions in mind, but abundant life, to use the phrase Jesus would later employ in John 10.10, that's what he had in mind. You want to live you want John 10, 10, uh, Jesus says why he came. Look, I came so that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's talking about knowing the Godhead and proving it by doing what he says. So conduct was important, of course, especially, especially as it belonged or pertained to fulfilling mankind's purposes, which was what? To go and nurture life. And... I think I'm going to have to wrap it up here because we're coming up on the break. Proverbs 19.16 says, He who keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises God's ways um, or is careless of conduct will die. That's, again, Proverbs 19.16. So you see the cause and effect. You see the, the law here of, if you will, the theological science of cause and effect we are going to take a break and we when we come back we are going to get into more of the comparison of how do we obey obey both the logos the word of god written word and the oral word of god see you after the break god bless welcome back we are doing uh, chapter 17 uh, entitled Obedience. Again, we're uh, dealing with a survey of a book called The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium by Don Innovolson. And um, where we left off was we were making a connection between, excuse me, um, cause and effect of if we know God, we should prove that knowledge, that relational knowledge, by basically hearing his voice and carrying out his commands. So, there's a connection here. I want to go back to um, what was God really after in giving us these guidelines, these rules. And conduct is defined 
as an alignment. In other words, aligning ourselves with God's focus, with God's will. We're aligning ourselves with our design. How were we designed in the beginning? Um, These rules were not rigid or intended to be mindless submission to arbitrary or capricious rules. The Old Testament prophets linked obedience to the imaging of God's character. Isn't that interesting? One example. Through Isaiah, God declares in Isaiah 1, verse 11, quote, I have had enough of burnt offerings. God called the Hebrews' rituals, which were done mechanically and without reference to justice. Uh, In verse 12, it talks about trampling God's courts, trampling on God's courts, over God's courts. And in verse 13, Father God expresses the above through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I cannot endure iniquity. And solemn assembly, he lamented. In verse 13, the kind of behavior God wanted, okay, this is important, was our action, was action consistent with being the image of God to display his nature to others, to display his character to others. So in the same chapter of Isaiah chapter 1, check out verses 16 through 17. And it says, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. There's another example in the Old Testament. This is... um, Micah the prophet. Uh, Check this out in Micah 6, verse um, 8. Micah summarized the point or the objective of God's law as follows. And this is pretty succinct. He has told you, old man, old man, not old man, but O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm going to repeat those three things. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? All three of these things are conduct consisting or consistent with imaging the nature and character of God. The prophet Hosea is another example of what this looks like. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he expressed the above. This is what God is seeking in giving us commandments for our protection. For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice. 
the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what obviously is referred to is the the uh, rituals of um, people coming just to kind of go through the motions to you know sacrifice the animal and then getting the forgiveness and then there's nothing that happens later as far as a coming together or an additional closeness of God and his people. So they're going through the motions. Um, I remember as a Catholic kid growing up that uh, we would have um, uh, Saturday confessions, and it was usually a rote sort of repetition of all the sins that you had done the previous week and the week before that. And so basically it, it was indicating that there was not really a repentance or a change of, of heart. And so here in Hosea, uh, in Hosea, we have the following. Or actually, maybe this is what Hosea, as he expressed it, that Jesus had in mind when he summarized the entirety of the law in, in answering a question of how do I live? How do we live? Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law that we see in Matthew uh, chapter 22, verse 36? And listen to how he summarizes the whole law. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40 here. You shall love the Lord your God, listen to this, with all your heart, all your soul, and all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So now let's get into how we can see this being applied in our daily lives. Thus, the essence of obedience or to the Logos word of the king was simplified in both its expression and in its fulfillment of love God and love others. Do these two things and the law will be followed. For example, in Exodus 20, verse 3, the law said, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay. But listen to this. So if a person actively loves God, actively, this person will naturally and even automatically place God first in his life. You see how that works? Look at this other example, Exodus 20, verse 13. The law says you shall not murder. Well, if a person actively loves others, murder will never, ever be a consideration. So, in the first instance, if we love God with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength, um, there will be no other place in our lives for other competitive gods. And those can be idols. It could be a, an item. It could be a thing. It could be your job. It could be a relationship. Anything that's going to compete with prioritizing God and the relationship with God as being primary, number one in your life. So general obedience to our design protocols is about half of what it means to be in the kingdom. 
But part two, there's another part to this. Obedience to the king also requires the development of what the author calls spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. This is part two of of the obedience uh, question. So that the direction of the king can be followed through everyday life. Now we're going to bring in the concept of not just obeying what's in the written word, but now following the directives of the spoken word, which is known as the rhema. The author says, the idea of obeying the rhema word of the king is really not a New Testament innovation. He mentions that men and women of God at every period of history recognize the need to tune in to God's constant and immediate direction. He gives some examples here. Um, In Isaiah 30, verse 21, he said there are hints of direct communication through small voices, other avenues speaking, quote, a word behind you, close quote. Another Old Testament example in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, it provides an interesting recognition of the need for prophetic words of that nature, and uh, he uses the example of Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where he says, at least out of the King King James version, where there is no vision, the people perish. In other words, they die, but he that keeps the law. Happy is he. And the author goes through some um, looking at the root words, the roots of the Hebrew word um, for vision is chason, which refers to a prophetic vision, divine revelation, or even an oracle. These are all Old Testament forms or examples of what rhema words, even in the Old Testament they were there. And uh, the word perish, um, in the Hebrew, it's para. And it has the idea of being without restraint. And um, it describes basically something as equivalent to letting loose the reins of a horse. And in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, the form used means to become unbridled or lawless. So... The following and listening to of God's voice is critical, and that's demonstrated not just in the New Testament, you know, after Pentecost in Acts uh, chapter 1 and 2, but it was also present in the Old Testament. Um, But notice, in the Old Testament, it presents the idea that without a prophetic communication with God— Check this out. Lawlessness results. Lawlessness comes about. People are unrestrained. Or more appropriately, one might even say aimless. So he concludes that thus the logos, the written word, is important for providing the foundation for godliness, righteousness. But he goes on to add, but without the rhema, the spoken word from the Holy Spirit to provide specific and to provide personalized direction and focus, the result 
is a righteous life, but it's aimless. In other words, you don't know how to apply the law in the here and now in your circle of influence. You have to have both. You need the specific direction of what to say, where to go, and what to do next, what to think next. So the role of a prophet in ancient society, ancient Jewish society, was usually to help people in determining the direction and the will of God in the immediacy of their lives. So whatever the actual mechanics were in the Old Testament, the point was that God recognized that there was a need for communicating with his sons, his daughters. It was a need for communication of immediate direction to enable his people, to enable them to obey his will. And that's something that's beyond the content of Bible verses, the written word, the logos. This is a different dimension. You need both to be able to obey completely and to, in order to have purpose in your life. The New Testament brought the use of the rhema words from God within reach to every believer, and we see that in the, in the Gospels. We see that in, in the book of Acts. Um, Jesus encouraged his disciples with the promise that, that they didn't need to worry ahead of time what to say um, when they would be dragged in front of rulers and authorities. And basically, he said, look, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. And you see that in three of the Gospels, um, Matthew 10, 19, Mark 3, uh, 13, 11, and Luke 12, 11. And it was this kind of specific direction through the Holy Spirit that, for example, impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness that we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 12. It was this kind of specific direction that informed, for example, the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, of what do we do with this flood of Gentiles? And they don't know the law. They're, they're not Jews, but God wants to include them in his plan of salvation. His whole plan was to, through the Jewish people, ultimately be a light to the nations. We see that in all the covenants with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So it was this kind of communication from the Holy Spirit that directed Paul don't, not to go to Asia and instead go to Greece. We see that in Acts chapter 16. It was also this kind of spiritual command that uh, the Holy Spirit said to Philip in Acts chapter 8. Go over and join the chariot when he saw the Ethiopian reading the scroll. So what all these incidents have in common is that they meet uh, a need for immediate direction beyond the scope of reading one's Bible. But these immediate direction words must also be obeyed. The kingdom of God is defined as follows. It's obedience to the king, the king of the kingdom. I'll say it again. 
the kingdom of God is defined by obedience to the king. And that obedience comes in two forms, not one. The first form is an alignment with the design protocols of how man was was made, and those design protocols are in the written word. But the second type of obedience is obedience to the immediate, the here and now, voice of the Holy Spirit on what to do next. So it should be noted that this kind of obedience isn't really involved in, you know, when you first have the born-again experience. We're talking more about after you have that initial salvation experience, after you become born again, we're talking about the importance of obedience and its function as being a natural outgrowth of that first initial experience of being born again. And it's all about entering into a relationship, a developing, maturing, increasing relationship with the king. And so obedience is necessary because it tells us how we are to experience the kingdom relationship with the king. (laughs) I'll read this again. Obedience is the how one experiences kingdom relationship. The author uses this example in Romans 14, 17. He says that for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but rather of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These three characteristics, the righteousness and the peace and the joy, um, manifest kingdom life, and they're experienced through your or our aligning ourselves with the king, which is another way of just simply saying obeying God's directions and commands. But what happens when we are not in obedience? When a person is not in obedience, the joy associated with knowing God, it doesn't stick around. It disappears. The peace that passes all understanding, it begins to slip away. It's not always immediate apparent what is wrong, but often it is felt palpably. For example, when the Holy Spirit left Samson, in Judges 16.20, it says he did not know it right away. But then suddenly things went wrong. He lost his strength. And when the slave girl uh, in Acts chapter 16.18 starts following Paul around, he became greatly annoyed. And uh, it was this disquiet that prompted him, prompted him to look for whatever was out of alignment with God's will. But there's another context in which obedience is critical. And that second, um, uh, hearing the rhema voice is so important. And that second context is how we engage in spiritual warfare. Satan is the accuser of the brethren that we see in Revelation 12, uh, verse 10. And he's always, Satan is always thinking, seeking legal permission or authority for his, for his interference in the lives of human beings. And by extension, the words works of God. So if it interferes in our lives, the works of God are being interfered with as well. 
So if one can stand before the throne, as Satan does, as we see in Revelations 12.10, and point to the disobedience and rebellion of human beings, what happens in the kingdom structure of things? The door legally opens for him. He can come in and basically legally accuse us before the throne of God. But what happens when we do listen to the rhema directions and guidance and obey them? What happens in that situation? Obedience shuts the door to the most of the direct attacks of, of the demonic world, and it lines up, it aligns the citizen of the kingdom with some amazing things, with the power and the protection of Father God. The Father becomes the Passover defender of those who live under the sign of the Lamb's blood. So the author is ready to wrap things up here. And just to summarize, he says it might be tempting to see rhema words from God as nothing more than assurance of promises or perhaps anchors to which faith might be attached, especially by those who are not comfortable with anything which resembles the miraculous. But the author says what's of greater importance is the overall establishment of the kingdom of God, and that's why obedience is so critical to hearing the voice of God and then acting on it. And that voice of God can come to us in the form of commands. And those form of commands, just because they're in oral form outside of the written context of the word, they have to be heard first, and that takes some practice. This is somewhat tricky business. I mean, Jesus spoke with the Father all of the time, but he was sinless. And we, as Paul described, we look through a glass darkly. But I am convinced, I'm just saying this outside of the book, that we get better at this because this, this becomes a skill set where we begin to recognize his voice. And don't forget what Yeshua, what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He, as, as, he says, as shepherd, my sheep know my voice. Well, we have to get better at how we spend our time to listen and recognize his voice. But his voice must be heard and obeyed. So that principle underlies the propagation of the gospel message throughout the earth. And the author wraps it up with this. He says, look, the Great Commission presupposes a people of God who align themselves with God's design protocols. Well, that's basically obeying the written word of God but they also listen for the voice of the Spirit of God. And then they readily obey it. 
as well. That's the Great Commission. That is what describes a people who operate listening both to the written word of God and carrying that part out and obeying it, as well as the spoken word of God in the here and now. That's kingdom life. That's how we gain eternal life. God bless you. Uh, We will see you next week as we go to the next chapter in this continuing book. And may, in the meantime, God give you many simple truth moments. See you next time. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.